Welcome to First Baptist Belton. By God's grace, we aim to be a gospel-centered people that know Jesus intimately, serve Jesus passionately, and share Jesus globally. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that you enjoy the following message. All right, good morning. Does anybody else have a voice left? Forgive me if I lose it halfway through this. I was singing loud. And it's a joyful noise. If it was a good noise, but it was a joyful noise to the Lord. It's good to be with you. I'm glad that you're all here this morning to worship the Lord. If you're online, I'm going to say thank you for taking time to tune in with us, the special day of worship of being in the Lord's house. Okay. So fun thing. How many of you guys are familiar with Charlie Brown and the Peanuts gang? We got a few whistles. Wow. Okay. All right. Better question. How many of you are not? Let me see. I need a show of hands. Who, who never heard of Charlie Brown, the whole Peanuts gang? Anybody? So it's safe to say that pretty much everybody in the room knows about Charlie Brown. All right. Good deal, man. That's probably the first time that's ever happened in history. Everybody in one room that this many people all agree on one thing, especially in a Baptist church. So that, that, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Okay. So Charlie Brown, best known personality wise, best known to be the loyal friend right? Determined. He's the, kind, he's the guy that kind of defines Murphy's law. If something ha- is going to go wrong, it will, and it does to poor Charlie Brown. Yet, nevertheless, he kind of has an optimistic viewpoint on the world. He keeps, keeps going through the challenges and the tough things, right? Then there's another character named Violet Gray. Y'all remember Violet? Anybody remember Violet Gray? So she's not one of the spotlight people in the Peanuts uh, storyline, but she does play a role. Now, Violet's personality is a little bit different than Charlie Brown's. Uh, she's a little, what we would call stuck up, right? Her mom and dad have a little bit more money than the rest of the kids in the, the, the playground, the Peanuts crew. Uh, she's always dressed to the nines, right? Another unique thing about Violet is she is obsessed with her dad. Her dad is the greatest thing that's ever happened and, and you kind of see this play out. There's an interplay between Violet Gray and Charlie Brown, specifically with their dads. As a matter of fact, in one of the episodes, Violet Gray looks at Charlie Brown and says, well, Charlie, my dad is taller than your dad. Another episode, she says, well, well Charlie, Charlie Brown, my dad has more credit cards than your dad does. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but in her mind, that's a good thing. And probably one of the more humorous ones is she says, well, Charlie Brown, my dad goes to, goes to PTA. Right? And the whole, whole point of this is that Violet Gray wants Charlie Brown to know that her dad is just far superior to his dad. She wants everybody to know in the playground or the, the Peanuts gang that her dad is far superior to his dad. Now, the point of this is there's something deep within us that desires to have someone who is far superior, far more powerful, that is outside of us, who is fighting our battles and defending us. Right? There's just something deep within us that just has that desire, right, that, that wants something outside of us 
right, that, that's more powerful than us, who, who knows us, who sees us, who loves us, and yet at, this, at the same time is fighting our battles. And this plays out on the playground when, when you were a kid. When I was a kid, I don't know if you can relate to this, but similar to Charlie Brown and Violet, you know, it was not uncommon for us to, to get a little competitive on, at recess and, and somebody would win or lose and somebody would spout off, well, my dad can beat up your dad. Remember that? And we'd spend the rest of recess talking about whose dad can beat up whose dad. Again, it goes back to that idea that all of us, deep within us, long to have somebody who's far superior, far more powerful than you and I, who is defending us and fighting our battles. Now, I've got really good news for you. We do. We do. We do have someone who is far superior, who is outside of us, outside of the nature of time and space, who is unlimited, who sees you, knows you, loves you, and hear me, is with you, defending you and fighting your battles. This morning, what we're gonna be talking about is the fact that God is omnipotent. Another big word, which simply just means that God is all-powerful. He has all power. In fact, I love the way that one author describes God's omnipotence. They put it this way. Our heavenly father never requires to be roused from slumber. I never have to, have, I never have to nudge him on the couch and say, hey, wake up. I never have to, he never has to be roused from slumber. His eyes never close in sleep. Our God is never tired. He never gets exhausted. His thoughts never wander with fatigue. You know what that means? God's never bored. He's never bored. His arms never grow too weary to support or protect. Our Father is strong and perpetually so. In other words, there are no kids on the playground whose dad can take on our dad. For he is all-powerful. There is no one who can compete with his might, with his strength, for he is truly all powerful. Now, speaking of this, this is kind of a fun fact. In the Old Testament alone, there are over 100 passages, not verses, but over 100 passages that speak to God's power pretty well. In the New Testament, there are over 20 passages, again, not verses, passages that speak to God's power. Now, in my study, clearly, we don't have enough time in the 35 minutes that that clock is giving me. I don't have enough time to speak to all 120 of those passages. But here's what I did in my study. Here's what I figured out. They all boil down into about four key themes. So there's four things about God's power that I want you to see this morning. And in fact, we're actually gonna go to the book of Genesis where we're gonna see God's power play itself out in four particular Themes, okay? So theme number one. Theme number one. God has the power to create as he pleases. God alone has the power to create according to his pleasure. In fact, in, in John's Revelation, in the book of Revelation, chapter four, verse 11, he captures this thing. It's really great. So he captures this vision of the elders in eternity and in heaven, all bowing down before God. And here's what they say. This is good. 
Here's what they say. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. The New Living Translation translates it this way. This is good. You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And hear this. For they exist because you created, hear me, what you pleased. God creates the universe and everything in it by the word of his power. In Genesis chapter one, we've talked about this quite often, right? Genesis chapter one, if you go all the way through it, it says, and God said, and it was so, and God said, and it was so. He spoke creation into motion, but not only does God have the power to create, but he creates it in according to his pleasure, his delight. In fact, after he's created the universe and everything in it, on the sixth day, God sits back, and what does he do? He observes his creation. Genesis 1:31 says that God observed his creation, and behold, it was very good. In other words, it was a delight to his eyes. He created in accordance with his pleasure. That's theme number one, that God alone has the power to create. He does that in accordance with his pleasure. But number two, number two, the second theme is that God has the power to destroy. So God has the power to create according to his pleasure, but he also has the power to destroy You know, back in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the cosmos, he creates everything, and he creates it in such a way that it functions in perfect harmony. It's perfect. Nothing is out of order. Everything is brought from chaos to order in God's creation. Then what what happens? Adam and Eve take a step out of God's design. They take a step of disobedience away from the Lord, and from that moment on, order is turned into chaos. God's pleasure turned into displeasure, displeasure. In fact, if you keep reading in the book of Genesis, we find ourselves in chapter six. Chapter six, verse five, God looks over creation. Remember in the creative narrative and in Genesis 131, God looks over his creation and what does he say? It is very good. A few years later, we find ourselves in Genesis chapter six, verse five, God looks over creation and here's what he says of it. Verse five says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. In other words, God's pleasure that was seen in creation has been exchanged for displeasure. When he looks out over the disobedience of mankind, God is certainly not pleased with it, but rather he is displeased, and we see the results of that in verse 13. In verse 13, here's, here are the results. God's speaking to Noah, and here's what he says. I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I, the Lord, will destroy them with all the earth. Wow. 
in layman's terms, what God is saying here is things have gotten so bad, so corrupt, so perverse that God has chosen to wipe the planet of everything. In fact, he says, you know what? It's so bad, I'm going to start all over. And what we're seeing in this narrative is that God has the power to create. God has the power to destroy. And perhaps Job said it best, that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. For he has all the power. Now, for many in the room, we may hear that God has the power to destroy and think, my goodness, where's the, where's the goodness in that? If God's omniscient, why in the world would he have created all these folks, all this, why would he create everything for it to all be completely wiped away? For others of you in the room, you might think of the, of the, the days growing up in Sunday school, the felt boards, Noah and the ark, and, and, and we focus so heavily in on, on the beauty of God's redemptive act in Noah that we forget God's holiness and the wrath that exists in Noah chapter, or in, in Genesis chapter six. It had gotten so bad that God had wiped the planet. Why? All for his glory. You have to understand this morning that God created things according to his pleasure for his glory. And because he is the one who created it, he alone has the power and the authority to destroy it. All for his glory, but I want you to see something else. The other thing I want you to see is our third theme, that God has the power to preserve. This morning, you need to hear that God has the power to create, God has the power to destroy, but also God has the power to preserve. You know, I was thinking in my study this week as I was reading through this and preparing and all the, the things, and it, and it hit me that, that Genesis really helps us see that no matter how powerful we think we are, no matter how intellectual we think we are, no matter how much money we have, no matter how, uh, how, how powerful we truly think we are, we are no match for God, that all of us are on equal footing and we stand helpless in the presence of his mercy. It's really the story of Genesis. Genesis tells us that at the end of the day, we all stand hopeless, helpless, all before God's mercy. And thankfully, we see God's mercy on display in the person of Noah. Now, Noah is described as a righteous man. Uh, he's described as blameless in his generation. It simply just means that he walked upright, that he walked in obedience to God. He walked with him. By the way, did you know that there are only three people in the Bible who are mentioned to have walked with God? You have Enoch, you have Moses, and you have Abraham. Those are the only, or Enoch, Noah, and Abraham, excuse me. Those are the only three folks that are described in the entire Bible who have walked with the Lord. And so God sits his favor on Noah, right? And here's what God does. He covenants to Noah, and here's what he says in that covenant. Genesis chapter six, verse 18. Looks, to, looks at Noah and he says, but Noah, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all the flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, 
of birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two, of every sort of food that is eaten, and I want you to store it up, for it shall serve as food for you and for them. And notice this, and Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. Now, as you flip over to chapter seven, specifically in verse 11, here's what you see. The rains begin to come, the floods begin to rise. And in verse 15, there's something so subtle here, but so incredibly powerful that I want you to see. In verse 15, the text says, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. Now, notice this. And the Lord God shut them in. The Lord God shut them in. They went in, they followed the Lord in obedience, they went into the ark, but it was the Lord who shut them in. Now, if, if you write in your Bibles, if you highlight, if you star, if you underline, whatever it is that you do, I want you to underline that phrase, I want you to highlight that phrase, I want you to circle that phrase, because in it is a picture of God's power to preserve. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of tragedy, it reminds us that God has the power to protect. God has the power to prepare. God has the power to preserve his people in, in the only way that he can do it. God alone has the power to protect, provide, and preserve for his people in a way that only he can do. You know, you gotta remember that at any moment, God could have followed through with what he said to Noah. He could have wiped the planet clean. Start all over. We can do that. If he can speak life into existence, surely he can do it again. And you know what? He could. But rather than doing that, he chose to preserve life. God has the power to create. God has the power to destroy but God also has the power to preserve. Wow. Now you would think, I would think, like surely they learned their lesson, right? To experience that kind of, that level of discipline, surely this remnant who was preserved by the Lord, surely they learned their lesson, but they don't, do they? Nope. Genesis 11 tells us that after all of that, man got so full of himself, his wisdom, his strength, his power, what happens? He forgot the Lord. They got on busy with their life, thinking how awesome that they are, and they forgot the Lord. You know, it's a wonder why God says this over and over and over and over again. All throughout the scriptures is, don't forget the Lord. Don't forget the Lord. Why do you think that is? Because we have a propensity to forget the Lord. No matter what happens, even if God preserves us, despite the whole world, shuts us up in an ark, we're gonna walk out on the other side of that ark and we're gonna forget the Lord. That's exactly what happens. And yet, despite that, theme number four is that God chooses to redeem them. God has the power, 
not only to create, not only to destroy, not only to preserve, but also to redeem, despite all of our mess. Chapter 11, due to their forgetfulness of God, their growing self-dependence, God ends up confusing their language, dispersing it all throughout the world. It's the Tower of Babel. Maybe you're familiar with that story. God disperses them all over the world, and sadly, sadly, rather than multiplying God's image and influence all throughout the world, you know what we do? We end up multiplying disobedience and wickedness all throughout the earth to the point that we're in the same place now than when we were prior to the flood. History just keeps repeating itself, doesn't it? Just keeps repeating itself. And yet, the Old Testament reminds us that over and over and over again, God makes a covenant with them, and what, what happens? Over and over and over again, they fail to live up to that covenant. They fail to live up to the law. They fail to live up to the expectations. And what does God do? Continually meets us in the mess and renews the covenant over and over and over again. In fact, we find ourselves in Jeremiah chapter 31. Chapter 31, things had gotten so bad yet again, it's, Israel's finally realizing that no matter how hard they try, no matter how much they work, no matter what they do, they just can't live up to God's standard. God recognizes this and he renews the covenant yet again. And in chapter 31, verse 33, here's what he says. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall know me. From least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, and I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Now, notice something. Who's doing the action in this text? You're good. You're good. I think she read my notes. God did. God does the action. Right? Notice it. Read it with me. I will put my law within them. I will write my, my, my law on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Right? And I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Israel, time and time again, fails to live up to God's holy standard. And yet God meets them where they are, promises that one day there will be a savior who's gonna come from the offspring of Abraham. And he is gonna come and he is gonna live up to the law perfectly. He's gonna satisfy what you and I could never do. He's gonna go to a cross. There he is going to be killed for your sin and for my sin. He will be a ransom for many that all who put their faith and trust in him on the other side of his grave will walk in newness of life. Wow. So in the midst of our disobedience and our inability to measure up to the law, God does what you and I could never do by sending Jesus to redeem his people, to gather a remnant of people who will know him 
walk with him, and he is going to ensure that by writing his law on their hearts. Speaking of Acts chapter 2, the, whole, the Holy Spirit comes down, falls on people. The gospel's preached. The Holy Spirit falls. Their hearts are cut open. The Holy Spirit enters in. And from that moment on in history, that moment on in history, we can walk with the Lord because he is with us. No longer do we have to go to a temple to meet with the Lord, but rather we are the temple of the Lord because his spirit dwells within us. God has the power to create. God has the power to destroy. God has the power to preserve. And only God has the power to redeem. And he does that in the person, in the work of Jesus. Now, it's important to understand that all of that is true, but for just a minute, I want us to go back to the playground illustration in the beginning. I want us to go back to the playground and deal. Deep within us is a desire to have, one, have someone who is far superior to us, far stronger than us, far more powerful than us, who is with us, who is defending us in fighting our battles. In other words, we all in this room, to one degree or another, know that we need a savior. That's true of everybody in this room. That's why we watch hero movies, right? That's why, we're, that's why our culture is obsessed with it. Whether they realize it or not, what they're, the reason why we're watching those things is because we know deep within us is that we need a savior. We need somebody who's gonna get us out of the mess that we're in, who's gonna clean up the disorder in our life. We need some help. We need a savior. But here's where all of this goes south where this idea of our need for a savior, where that goes south is when we recognize that God is up here and we are down here. God is up here and because he's up here, he's, he's unfamiliar with my circumstances down here. And so what do we do? We've gotta create our own savior. We, we've gotta fill in the gap. God's up here, we're down here, we gotta fill in the gap. And so what we end up doing is we end up reaching for omnipotence. And in this reach for omnipotence, we either crown somebody the savior of our life or we ourselves become our very own savior. And while sometimes that promises a level of life and fruit and control and power, the problem is, is that it never delivers on its promise. See, when you or I are the saviors of our life, we will always fail. In fact, the more we try, it's like quicksand, the more we try, the faster we sink. And more often than not, we're sinking and we don't even realize it. See, you and I attempt to create, destroy, preserve, and redeem our lives. Let me illustrate it this way. What we end up doing is we end up attempting to build golden calves. You remember that story? Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. Right? Moses is up there. He goes to meet with God up there. The people are left down here, right? God, Moses goes up to get a word from the Lord, direction, instruction. Man's waiting to hear from the Lord. And, and in that time that goes by, they get a little impatient. Moses doesn't come down when they think he should. 
right? And so what do they do? They begin building golden calf, a golden calf. And in the same way, we too, to fill in this gap, God's up here, we're down here. What do we do? We create our own little G gods. And when those gods become threatened, we become angry, anxious, or irritated. And so what do we do? We work to destroy, remove, or cancel anything that gets in the way, any barriers that get in the way of these little G gods. Thinking, well, we'll just preserve them. We'll preserve ourselves. We'll preserve this, these little G gods that we have built, all because we believe that somehow, some way, they're gonna be the thing that saves us, that fixes our problems. I've got a couple of illustrations for you. The first one's money. It's just easy to pick on. Nothing wrong with money, it's just easy to pick on. Right, we, we create this idea that if I just have enough money, then all my problems will be solved. Right, I can get rid of the debt. I can fix this, this beater of a vehicle. I can send my kids to college. It's gonna solve all of my problems. But here's the problem. We always spend up to what we have. We spend up to what we have, and then guess what? The lawnmower breaks down. I gotta get a new roof. Kid breaks his arm. That's a thousand bucks minimum, right? Life happens. It begins to threaten those little G gods, that little G god of money, and so what do we do? Well, I just have to get more. I guess I'll just work a little bit harder. I'll work some more hours. Maybe then I can gain enough money to satisfy this thing that I think is gonna redeem or save me, but here's what happens. I end up getting more credit cards, so I start racking up more debt. I spend more time away from my family, and so I punt on my responsibilities. Kids end up wayward. I have more stress in my life because, yeah, sure, I've got a whole lot more stuff, but now I gotta maintain all this stuff. I gotta fix it all. And who's got time and money for that? When we believe the lie that somehow money is gonna be the thing that saves us, it only creates more stress and more problems in our life. Here's another one. Here's another one. So let's label this legalism. So we'll create these little g-gods by laws, like, right, we'll, we'll create these laws, these standards that we're supposed to live by and everybody else is supposed to live by, right? So we create this law, we create these standards for other people, and then when they don't measure up to those standards or we don't measure up to our own standards, what happens? We become angry, irritated, all together. I just don't understand why they can't measure up to my standard. And so what we end up doing, one of two things, we either cancel them out of our lives altogether or we begin to become self-righteous and judgmental. Well, if they would only live up to my standards. Listen, only God has the power to create standards because only he has the, 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 the power to redeem us when we fail those standards. You see, when we create standards and we create rules for other people and they fail to live by them and we cut them out of our lives or we judge them, we're only creating 
more and more problems for ourselves. You remember what Jesus says about the self-righteous person? As a matter of fact, Jesus has more harsh things to say about self-righteous people than he ever does about sinful people. Ever think about that? Whitewashed tombs, brood of vipers. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. It only creates more and more and more problems. Here's another one. People, right? So we'll elevate people. We'll try to fill in that gap, right? Let's fill in the gap. So we'll elevate somebody in our life. Maybe it's a mom, dad, granddad, son, daughter, grandchildren. We elevate them in our life. Maybe it's a pastor or a leader, something of that nature, right? We elevate them in our lives. And we think, wow, man, this is a perfect person. I'm gonna follow them. What happens when they fail? We're seeing this in our culture all the time, aren't we? Leaders continually failing and failing and failing. Could it be because we're putting people on a standard and elevating them to a pedestal where they don't belong and only Jesus belongs? And so they fall from that standard. And then we're just devastated. I mean, how many people would say, I've walked away from the church because a man failed? Listen, if that's you, please hear this with grace and love. But how weak is our faith if one person has the ability to rock all of it? It's because we elevate people to a standard where they don't belong, that only Jesus belongs. And when they fail us, we don't know what to do. And so we're devastated, we're destroyed when God's saying, hey, listen, only I have the power to create. Only I have the power to destroy. Only I have the power to preserve. Only I have the power to redeem. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing because you and I, because he's all powerful, we don't have to be. We can submit our lives and we can rest in his power knowing that we don't have to wake him up. We don't have to nudge him in the pew and say, hey, hey, wake up. God never stays up a little bit too late where that morning he's a little groggy and he's just like, hey, I need some, I need some quiet space. God's, he's never, he's never gets tired. He never loses strength. He's perfectly strong, perfectly alert, never bored, always engaged. On the playground, there is no dad who stands a chance against our dad. And so my hope for you this morning is that you believe that to be true. I want you to believe that to be true. I want you to go to the playground of life claiming the truth that nobody can touch you because nobody can touch your dad. Nobody can defeat him. And so when Satan speaks those lies in your mind, you say, oh no, my God's all powerful and I know what he says of me so I can disregard what you say of me. I can walk in his strength I can walk in his strength because he sees me, he knows me, he loves me, and he is the superior power outside of me who is with me fighting my battles and defending me before God, man, and the enemy. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace to us.
God, thank you that we don't have to fill in the gap. We don't have to. We don't have to feel the pressure to fill in the gap, but Lord, we can rest in your power and we can trust you alone. For you alone have the power to create, destroy, preserve, and redeem. And so Lord, help us to live in light of that truth. God, help us to lay our crowns at your feet. Resist the temptation to create little G gods knowing that every little G God that we have bows at your feet. God, we thank you that you have sent Jesus as a ransom for our lives, as an invitation to dine with the King. It's in his name that we pray, amen. If you would like more information, please visit fbbelton.org or call our church office at 254-939-0705. We are located at 506 